have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely, this is the podcast, and the friends will be along in a moment. It's been a really busy week for me. I am, I, I'm, I'm over the hump, as they say. Uh, I've passed all my midterms. I got good grades, in case you're curious about that. And uh, things are going pretty well. One of my teachers said I'm doing an excellent job in class discussions. And one of my teachers snapped his fingers and went, you, you uh, d- d- funny name. So I'm really making an impression uh up there at school uh oh man what has happened there i've hardly paid attention to anything going on uh out there in the zeitgeist uh saw a trailer for that witcher show on netflix it's got people in it swinging swords around and stuff i don't know it looks fine everybody's talking about it on the internets i don't it's not my thing i've never read those books uh i mean i do like fantasy and stuff so maybe i should you know i i i'm i'm listening to uh the audiobook of anathem by neil stevenson that's a lot of fun it actually makes me feel somewhat excited about the math class I'm gonna have to take. It's this is a really weird thing, okay, folks? Like you have to take a math class to graduate college, even if you're not going into a math profession. And like I haven't taken a math class in 15 years. I had a really horrible math teacher in high school, and she actually pointed at me and was like, "You are not good at math. You will never amount to anything in this life." So. That's fun. Um, yeah. You know, and her name was Kim, so like, whatever, Kim. Anyway, that was 15 years ago. I'm not bitter. I've totally sort of com- commented on something in the current cultural zeitgeist, so let us speak of it no more. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less including these 11. Who imposed this rule? Does it, is this a side count? I, fiddlesticks. Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Two backwoods rednecks encounter a group of college kids out for a weekend of partying at a remote lake. A misunderstanding occurs and the kids start dying in horrific ways. It's a horror movie from the monster's perspective, except the monsters are well-meaning people who are just trying to help. Take, for instance, my favorite sequence in the film. Tucker, played to perfection by Alan Tudyk, accidentally hits the nest of hornets while chainsawing a log apart and runs for his life, fighting off the bees with the still-running chainsaw. The college kids think they are being charged by a crazed hill person with a chainsaw and run for their lives. Tucker thinks they're also running from the bees, actually running past them. <laughs> I'll admit it. I'm a sucker for stories that mock the abject stupidity of two sides of a schism making error after compounded error into an ever deeper conflict. The gore might be too much for some, but for me, this was a hoot 
from start to finish. This is my chat with Ben Mann. He is another one of the artists here in the Morgan Block building and someone that I've always really enjoyed bumping into in the hall and sharing the space with. He is a painter and if you look at the Instagram or the website posting or any of the places where this podcast is posted, you'll see some of his paintings because we do talk a lot about his uses of color and things like that. It was an absolute pleasure to have him come down the hallway and chat with me in my studio. I've got this this whole new studio setup going on where I have a couch in here now and a comfy chair. So it's a really comfy place to chat and talk and uh, I hope it comes across in our conversation. So without further ado, this is my chat with Ben Mann. Some people have interviews where it's immediately going out into the public sphere. Yeah. And so that's nice to even know the word editing. I assume nothing. But my friends at Talking to Crows Mm -hmm. shot me a week ago. We spent five hours making a five-minute little documentary. And within that five hours, we interviewed someone who'd commissioned a painting. Uh-huh. someone who had taken a paint lesson from me and a merchant who's using my art to wrap around as a label on product. So it's mostly a kind of a studio services overview. Right. We're going to come up with a far sexier title, but right now it's all major editing. That's all, right. on, all on them. And uh, it's the happiest check I ever write is to talking to crows. They're oh, that's so great. extraordinary because I was them. So I love employing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You put them together. They're still younger than me. Right. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bitter. I'm just saying. Like, no. really? Really? You had to, like, okay. Oh, it's... it's really? Am- you were born in 2011? I'm so happy for you. It's amazing, because <laughs> I'm back at Western after uh, taking a break, and I'm I'm only 32, uh-huh. but that still makes me, like, 15, 14, 15 years older than mm-hmm. some of my classmates, and just, watching just how they it. process the world yeah, right. is mind-boggling. Yeah. I do guest lectures at Western. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just it's it's a totally different world mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is it should I say Ben or Benjamin? For ben, is, ben is fun. Ben, yeah. So if I if I hear um, I'm not really a three syllable guy, but if I hear Benjamin, I'm typically in hot water. So, oh yeah, yeah. But I love the name. In fact, Ben sound I love identify as Ben. Uh huh. But it's a name that sounds like a lot of other things. So I'm in yoga, and the teacher says Bend. And I think she's calling on me. And second grade trauma, um, the teacher would say blah, 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 and then carry the two. Well, I thought she'd say Ben. So it's a, it's almost a soundbite. You have two right. syllables, you're blessed. But uh, I'm a one-syllable guy, but it, people often hear Dan or children in grade schools think Ben Man is one word, like mm-hmm. Superman. <laughs> okay. You know, if your check clears, I don't. Yeah. That's, that's, that's totally fine. Okay. It is an interesting thing that I've started to notice with doing a podcast and like editing voices. Uh, this podcast is not as heavily edited as there's another one I do. It's very heavily edited just because it's a two hour long podcast. And if we can shave 10, 15 minutes off that, uh, sure. we'll do it. Sure. Um, is that when you read words like printed on a page, it's word, 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 right. word, word with right. spaces in between. Yes. And spoken English. Uh-huh often ha- has words where it'll they, they will be stuck together. Oh, yes. Like Ben Man. Right. Kind of sounds like one word. Uh-huh. Especially if you're speaking quickly. Right. Just like I said, especially if you're speaking quickly. I uh-huh. said especially if. Yes. As, as if it was one word. And the same could be said in French. Um, someone said to me, I'm not sure. 
Mm-hmm. They would say it in a way that sounded like a single word. So yeah. you better know your... It's the way we smush, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It's effective and it's um, intimate and certainly there's an informality, but it's also, once you get good at something, you tend to squash. It, it is strange. You know, there's that... Uh, the movie The Dark Knight, the Batman movie, like mm-hmm. a decade ago, and Heath Ledger played the Joker. And he clearly enunciated every single syllable. Creepy. And it was super creepy. It's <laughs> like he's speaking English better than anybody I've ever love heard. It. I love it's it. It's so creepy. I love it. Uh, people uh, that are from back east often say to me that we speak more slowly out here. Well, sure, compared to TikTok oh, New yeah. Yorkers. Yeah. The, the amount of conversation I have overheard between two New Yorkers going one stop. Oh, so it's like, what, four minutes or something on the, on the subway? I'm like, it would take me a month to, 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 to transcribe all of that. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so you paint. Yeah. How long have you painted? Uh, officially, I started in college, but I mean, I was uh, pushing Crayolas about the time I was learning to walk. Mm-hmm. So behind every uh, great painting is a whole lot of drawing. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, but painting was one of those things thrust at me in private school. And had I known, when I majored in illustration, had I known how much painting was involved, I might have jogged out, but um, it was too late by then. And and it, and it turns out my drawings speak to people, but my paintings will sing. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty powerful thing to push myself into that beyond. And to this day, infinitely easier to sell a painting than a drawing. But trust me, behind every painting is a buttload, you know, 50 plus years of drawing. Yeah. yeah. And I, I love drawing, but painting is kind of my, what puts me on the map, I suppose. So. Is it, I mean, I, I don't really make visual art, so this is always something that's really fascinating to me to talk to people about. Mm-hmm. Is it that drawing has, uh, there's like a higher degree of precision? I guess when I think of drawing, I think of like pencils, pens, sure. like things that have a finer point, whereas yep. painting, you can kind of get those paintings about the smudges and the thick and thin that occurs shadow and whatnot um uh, drawing is uh, in for me at least the way that i created drawing is going to be the foundation of all the color choices that follow and color moves people emotionally and um when i'm not doing my commercial art and fine art i teach painting to children and one of the things that I tell children is there's no amount of color that will rescue a drawing you did not take your time with. So if that makes sense to you, yeah. that, that I'm really laying down the skeleton mm-hmm. of what the painting's statement will be with, with my lines. Right. And then, and then with paint, then I arrive at shadow, depth, color, certainly moving the emotional mm-hmm. needle for people. Um, that color is a pretty powerful tool. But at its core, because my paintings are often representative, not abstract, mm-hmm. um, I like to make a drawing that actually has as little detail as possible and then let color take over and frankly let the viewer do a lot of the heavy lifting. So, Yeah, a lot of your pieces, that it's, it's so fun because not only do I get to see your pieces in your studio, but you're sort of part of this wider Fairhaven neighborhood that we both work in and... I often will have coffee with a clatch of old dudes down at uh, Avenue Bread, mm-hmm. and you know your stuff is all up in there, mm-hmm. and uh, also I think there's a bunch of it down at uh, Mount Bakery. Yeah, is there some down there? Mm, no, there... a little cheerful has some. Oh, okay. Mar- uh, Mallard Ice Cream has a, mur- a mural in permanence. Yes. And then um, Mambo Italiano. 
Okay. Yeah. So it must have been a little cheerful. Yeah. I've, like, I, I've eaten breakfast yes. with your pages <laughs> My well. yes, yes. The, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about color because having seen a lot of your work, uh, there you paint with really bright color a mm -hmm. lot of times. There's, there's a lot of really rich yellows and, and greens mm -hmm. and reds. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you're making strong choices with those colors, or because it doesn't it doesn't feel like they're strong colors? You know, to, like to say that there's a bright color in a painting, I think sometimes implies that the painting is aggressively, mm -hmm. you know, the painting is aggressively yellow or aggressively mm -hmm. red, and your paintings aren't aggressive; mm -hmm. they're very inviting and mm -hmm. welcoming. Thank you. Uh, I think I reach for a lot of optimism in my life mm -hmm. in general, and so my palette reflects that. A classmate of mine in college. As we were preparing for cap and gowns, she said to me, Ben, you have the most scandalous color palette. <laughs> and I just loved it. And here we are 30 years later. I'm like, that is so righteous to be told that, that what a fabulous word to begin with. Right? Yeah. And, um, but that there's something that uh, alerts people, wakes people up. When I was about nine years old, I said to my dad, I don't want people looking at my art. I want them to look twice. Mm -hmm. And color is a pretty powerful thing. And I move colors that move me when I'm standing at the easel and if I struggle with a piece I'll set that canvas aside but um yeah and certainly not aggressive but there's a lot of uh urgency about my colors and I like that they move the message of a painting and um people's responses are often that your studio is my happy place mm -hmm. that kind of that's pretty high praise and um and if they buy it that's nice too it means that they want to take that feeling state home with them and um, I waited tables for so many years that I assume nothing about sustainability as an artist, even though my work is out there. Right. You're in a cafe full of paintings. Those are prospective paychecks, mm -hmm. right? And so um, the sustainability uh, paintings are valid to me from a creative standpoint, but whether or not they um, sustain me <laughs> is a different kind of thing. But I, li I do love that my creative urges seem to hit... Uh, a nerve with people who actually want to consume art mm -hmm. uh -huh. because there's plenty of artists out there who do this for a living but their passion is way over on the across right. the room in something else and i'm really fortunate to find the crossroads between my sustainability and something that still moves me on a very soulful level and when people say i walked by your artwork and i immediately knew it was yours mm -hmm. they feel good about themselves because they can name the artist right but it turns out to be good business as well, because if you like that painted neighbor's mailbox, I don't know who else you would turn to. Right. It's a distinction, or sometimes the word branding gets bantied about. But I just love that I have a, a, a voice and then right behind it, a certain amount of validation on a local level is an extraordinary thing. So how long have you been painting, I guess, in the this particular locality, like in Bellingham? Because you... You went, you grew up around here? Yes, I did. I grew up on Lake Whatcom. Mm -hmm. And it was about uh, 1999. I came home from having been employed overseas. And um, I, like a lot of artists, had a card table in a spare guest room. Uh, and I shared that guest room with a cat box and a computer and, mm -hmm. you know, all that. And, and I was making paintings and then knew that I needed a space separate from my home. And it was in 2000 that I got to secure a space here in the Morgan Block building at 10th and Harris in Fairhaven. And my first studio was on the second floor with two roommates and a view of an air well. And I loved it. 
Were you in number two? I was in number two. Yes. That was also my first. No way! Yeah. Oh, how funny. So, so um, it's this, it's this portal. I mean, really, I would take a broom closet because, mm-hmm. as you know, I couldn't store a kayak in Seattle for what I spend on a paint studio here in yeah. terms of rental. And so that's a, it's, a, it's a none too minor miracle to get a space. But I've always loved having home and work separate, mm-hmm. and I succeed at things because I tend to compartmentalize. When I was waiting on tables, I wasn't an artist, right, in the mm-hmm. shift. But likewise, when I'm working with kindergartners, I'm not doing commercial art. I'm able right. to kind of segment and to have things home and work separate. And now it's quite literally a foot in two counties because my house is in Mount Vernon. Uh-huh. I just love it. When I'm in Fairhaven, I'm kind of on task. And then when I'm home, I'm deadheading the rhubarb and whatever. <laughs> yeah. That, that separation, you know, as someone who makes a lot of performance art about my own life i i sometimes am afraid of that separation because i'm like i need my life to have the art touching it so then Uh, i can make the things about it but at the same time here getting into this building the the morgan block was the first time in my adult life that i had a space that was just mine yes because i've just i've been on the road for so long that I'm either, you know, renting a flat short term or subletting from someone mm-hmm. or getting some roommates for a few months. Mm-hmm. And even in a shared house, you're still sharing the other things. Like, to, to just be like, this is where I can leave the project out and come back to it. There's, there's something about that headspace that I think is so critical to a place like this. It's, it's why we started this a couple minutes late, because I was in here, like, putting away <laughs> the thing I'd been working on a yeah. few last week. Uh, and it's 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 such a wonderful, dare I say, privilege yes. to get to have these spaces where we can kind of just just come for the art and not have to worry about the other stuff. Yes, absolutely. It is is a domain where we can be and do and all the all the verbs that kind of um, funnel into our creative selves. And I certainly take my work home with me. First of all, there's paint on my sleeve mm-hmm. most days if I've done if I've done my job right. right. But the other thing is that a lot of, I, I do keep an easel in my basement at home because sometimes on a Saturday I'll want to putter on an idea mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And I keep sketchbooks in my car. And then professionally, a lot of my successes have in fact crossed over into Skagit with things like the Tulip Festival poster for 2019 and there's a coffee house down there that sells yeah. my paintings and you know it's nice that things it's not that rigid mm-hmm. life is here and so and right. such but um but i do like that there's uh there's an intentionality to our spaces and the way we make it i have a, i host a lot of open studios mm-hmm. which are really fun during the holidays hot cider etc but i really also celebrate the closed studio days yeah. where i bolt the door and play country music and don't take a call and get to sink deeper into my work. Sometimes I'll go in and I don't turn on music or lights because I want to be in my space, but absent to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And that might even include my boyfriend. So that's okay, where you get to really quicksand into the thing. A lot of days are far from that, where right. I'm TikTok, I've got a client, I've got a guest lecture at Western, I've got third graders across town I've committed to, um, and I hit the yoga mat about five mornings a week a block away from the studio Mm -hmm. so life is a lot of external kinds of things but much of what I do happens because of this building not necessarily in this building right and it it was I explained it to someone recently that the 
the space is not just a physical space where you keep stuff or do stuff. It's it's a mental space mm-hmm. that you, you just kind of go, okay, that that happens over there. Sure. And, you know, I guess it kind of, it comes full circle, that idea of compartmentalization. Yes, that is, yes. It's a, it's a physical manifestation of a, of a mental compartment. Yeah, okay, there's a containment here, and there's um, the, the way that this community or culture has built up within this building. I tell friends it's, it's that we are more than neighbors but less than roommates, mm-hmm. that there's an accountability, and I love that metaphorically in the world as well, and, and I'll hear hammering, or I'll smell some oil paint, or I will get a whatever it might be there's there's whispers of the other artists but there's a stunning amount of um autonomy and community mm-hmm. which is amazing to me that that can coexist it's sort of like how my yoga teacher can elevate me and ground me in the same moment i find that just so bizarre but it's such a it's such a great thing that's such a, a fascinating dichotomy that you just pointed out the idea of being elevated and grounded at the same time it's possible yeah. yeah, it's extraordinary. In fact, it's it's rather critical for me, in just from my vantage point of making a living in the arts, because many a young artist has wanted to grab a cup of tea with me and mm-hmm. and talk about their future in the arts, and they will say to me things like, "I love to hula hoop. I also make a really good paella, and I think of myself as a decent poet, and I also have a saxophone somewhere in my basement, and I've worked with watercolors about a year ago, and I just my head just spins. I envy that yeah. because I. You know, I waited tables so long, and I have a lot of other interests, but I had to really hone in on the thing, mm-hmm. and stylistically even zero in on it. And people are going to be paying me $50 an hour to do a thing. They want a certain amount of follow-through. Right. And so that's not to detonate the romance of a young artist who's um, out there porous with all five senses, plus their sense of humor, mm-hmm. um, going out there into the world and being and doing and tasting and whatever intercourse they're having with the world mm-hmm. it's an amazing thing but at some point between you know crochet and beer making you know there's a certain amount of if you're going to narrow the unless you have a phenomenally deep pockets right or a really understanding um clientele uh, <laughs> i think there's a certain i think it's like any other professional mm-hmm. so yeah that that's a fascinating thing to point out because i I'm sort. I feel like I'm sort of coming to the end of that period in my life of just being like, I'm over here doing this, and I'm over mm-hmm. here doing this, and I want to do this, and this is really cool, and kind of getting to this point where like, I mean, for I, I think for in-person performance art is a little bit different because mm-hmm. I, I still I am a performer and I perform in person, so you know I play accordion and ukulele and a couple other instruments and I do some magic and things, but realizing that like live performance. Is going to be the thing, yeah. Because live performance and non-live performance, you know, recording or whatever, are two different things. And so, f- sort of finding those areas of focus and actually spending time on being something other than the excited amateur. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Bellingham loves an excited amateur. Oh, this yes. town is this town is full of the excited amateur. Yes, but you're actually relatively young, I think, to be narrow to realize that and to mm-hmm. be narrowing your aperture a little bit. And it's not that I'll never pick up a saxophone or never, mm-hmm. you know, it's just that when I'm 40 hours a week at a thing and I worked many, many, many years where I didn't get this 40 hours a week, I know that I just it, it behooves me to kind of um keep an eye on uh 
funneling the bulk of my energies into the thing that makes me sustainable. And then on my weekends, playing around with other um, kinds of creativity, whether it's um, planting in my yard or um, sometimes looking at other artworks or listening to other art forms, music and whatnot is going to um, make me grow as a, as a guy mm -hmm. and might impact my paintings too. I, I'm very fond of talking about how the, all the things that you do that are not your chosen art form, be it acting or music or painting mm -hmm. or whatever, all the things you do that are not that thing are the things that make you an interesting creator of that thing. Sure. So the actors that I know who spend time reading, you know, Danish history books, mm -hmm. they're bringing something to their performances that would not show up if they hadn't done that. Yeah, Abs absolutely. You know, musicians who spend time learning chess or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a million ways to go about that. But I, I love the idea of you putting around in your garden and then being like, oh, that's a, hmm. And then it's showing up on a canvas, mm -hmm. but not in any discernible line. It's sure. just sort of this, this thing that you take. And yeah, there's a thread of energy, I suppose. And, mm -hmm. and uh, if I get some sun on the weekend, then I'm technically coming into the studio Monday morning with a little bit more of a tan mm -hmm. or a little more of a buzz, or maybe <laughs> I've got some fresh berries that I brought to work. Or uh -huh. There's these things that will cross over, but I think that's very um, astute. What's funny is had you had this conversation with me a few years ago, I would have said to you, my art practice is a bit of a tricycle uh -huh. because I'm making a living by doing commercial art, fine art, and then the education piece with uh, grade school students. And now I would describe it more as a cook stove with four burners. Uh -huh. On the front burners are probably the commercial art and, and uh, commissioned kinds of paintings where people um, pay me for a certain thing. There's uh, um, also on the front burner would be the, the um, fine art that I make. I hang in cafes that might sell. And on the back burners would be my education piece, things that I do for uh, in terms of teaching, either private tutorials or guest lectures in grade schools and whatnot. But the fourth burner, I've been realizing more and more how important it is, and that's the playground where I'm making artworks that are free of deadline, free of client, free of... Um, I just don't have to behave on that fourth burner. And that's where my, a lot of my creativity cooks. And invariably, a client will walk in and go, wait a minute, you're painting on linen? Uh-huh. <laughs> You've never, they right. almost seem, it's a fascinating thing that there's, I, you know, my, my artwork was mine before it belonged to the public eye and every artist needs to reckon with that sort of like, I'm going to throw saffron in this and screw the world and mm -hmm. that kind of like, to keep, keep the alchemist and the, and the mystery, and I'm 52, mm -hmm. so I'm um, uh, of an age where I like being able to keep an eye on my sustainability but I also want to remember that there's um, a lot to be explored and, and lots of art supplies that I kind of need to look twice at. And I haven't done a lot of artworks that are three-dimensional, but sometimes I will take unlikely three-dimensional items mm -hmm. and apply my 2D design to them. So That idea of still exploring, I, I don't know if you followed that thing a few years back. They found these old IBM floppy disks from like the, I think it was the early 70s or something like that. Uh, in the Andy Warhol archive ah. and at some point Andy Warhol had gone to some university or something like in the last five years of his life 
and gotten to play with an early version of like MS Paint. Oh my. And you know, on like a giant IBM somewhere. And he made like soup cans and bananas and you know like That's Andy funny. Warhol stuff, but it was like he was still being like, Oh, this is interesting. Let's yeah. let's try this thing. Interesting. And I, I, I love that idea of, of, of getting older and being like, I want to keep pushing this. Yeah. Keep trying and keep, keep making more things. You know, there, it's really fascinating to watch some, how some artists kind of go, I've got this thing figured out. I'm just going to keep doing the, the thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how you end up touring casinos. <laughs> <laughs> And some artists are still surprising yeah. after decades. Yeah. So. Yeah, even I wonder if we were to sit and have this visit five years from now, what I would be up to, what you would be up to, you know, the sustainability of art and, and uh, kind of that crystal ball yeah. question. and, and uh, so. Well, yeah. hopefully we will have this conversation five years from yeah, now. It's sure. been a pleasure talking to you Thank on the you. podcast. Thank, Thank you so much for coming down the hall oh, it was my pleasure always, always an adventure to spend time with you oh, well thank you so much come back anytime I'll be back so that was my chat with Ben Mann he was so much fun to have here in my studio and I hope I chat with him more in the near future if you'd like to know more about Ben you can head on over to Ben minus man, that's man with two N's, dot com. So benman.com. And uh, if you want to see his work in person and you happen to be in Bellingham, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. between Thanksgiving and Christmas, you can come and see Ben's studio and meet him. He has a studio here in the Morgan Block building at 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. So come on down and meet Ben. Here's a thought. How recently have you gone into a film without any preconceived notions? I recently had the pleasure of doing that with a movie called Greta. This 2018 film was written and directed by Neil Jordan, the Irishman also responsible for adaptations of Breakfast on Pluto and Interview with a Vampire. The setup for this one is pretty simple. A young woman named Frances, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, finds an abandoned handbag on the New York subway. Inside is an ID card that leads her to the home of a middle-aged French pianist named Greta, embodied by a note-perfect Isabella Huppert. An unlikely friendship of the kind common in mumblecore films ensues, with Francis spending more and more time with Greta. Greta is not so subtly nursing secret hurts since the death of her husband and her daughter leaving for conservatory. Francis is also in mourning over the death of her mother. As the two women grow closer, their friendship passes a few subtle moments of weirdness before taking a hard left turn at the beginning of the second act. At this point, I have to explain that I was unaware of the genre of this film, and thus the hard left turn caught me completely by surprise. I had vaguely heard somewhere that this film was about a relationship between a 20-something woman and a woman in her 50s. I had, for some reason, assumed that this was an awards-bait lesbian romance drama. The fact that it was written and directed by the same guy that made Breakfast on Pluto probably cemented that fact into my mind. This is not a lesbian romance drama. 
I'm going to go a bit into spoilers here, but I won't say anything that's not given away in the film's trailers, which I somehow missed. This is a no-holds-barred thriller. The hard left turn I mentioned earlier comes about when Francis is rooting around in the cabinets at Greta's house looking for some candles and finds a pile of the handbags, all containing identical identification cards and bric-a-brac, like lipstick and whatnot. The moment is odd, but the film's music makes no bones about how we are supposed to take it. Francis tries to pull away from Greta, but finds the older woman startlingly difficult to shake off. Things escalate to kidnapping and drug-assisted imprisonment before reaching a conclusion that reminded me of something out of a lesser Alfred Hitchcock film. I cannot stress how much fun I had watching this film, thinking I was watching an Oscar Beatty drama, only to have it devolve into a trashy stalker thriller. It's enough to make me want to wholeheartedly recommend that you do this intentionally to your friends. Putting aside the obvious problems that outright lying to people, you know, bring up, there seems to be a deep well of enjoyment to be had from putting on, say, a romantic comedy and telling your friends it's about a psychotic serial killer. I mean, that's not very far off, is it? Maybe that's just me. Consensual genre gaslighting only, okay, people? I'm not sure I can recommend Greta. While it does some interesting things in terms of being a story about three women and their interactions with each other, it lacks a certain something. It absolutely passes the Bechtel test, in case you're wondering, but that's no measure of quality. I did appreciate the fact that the problem was created, endured, and ultimately solved without male interaction, making this a definitively female story. Until you remember that it was written and directed by a man, and then you're back to- look. I've already given this film more than it deserves. Suffice to say, I had a load of fun watching this thing without preconceived notions, and I highly recommend you go find a random film and do the same. My friend and I used to go to the local video store, and in addition to whatever we went in there for, we would ask them to rent to us whatever they had that had been most recently returned, without telling us what it was. More often than not, we saw something that took us completely by surprise. <sighs> Just thinking about that makes me wish more than ever that Netflix or Amazon or any of the streaming services had a play anything button. That would be so cool. It would almost be like watching television where you could just pop on the TV and... Uh, I need more coffee. Hokey fright. Have you heard about Lost Girl? I've already had a chat with my delightful co-host Sarah Shea over on our TV Pilots podcast, Pilot House. Ah, uh, yeah, Synergetic Cross-Promotion! Cross Synergy! But I wanted to take a moment to say a few things about it here, hopefully without hitting any Season 2 spoilers that will bother Sarah. Don't worry, Sarah, I'll keep it as vague as possible. Here's the basic idea. A young woman named Bo finds out that there's a reason every boy she's ever kissed has died. Bo is a succubus. Yep. This show started in 2010 at the height of the supernatural romance sexy monster craze, and since vampires and werewolves and whatever were pretty well handled, this show is about a succubus. Bo finds out she has sexy succubus powers that allow her to drain people's <coughs> energy and gain super strength and mind control and who knows what all else in the process. She also finds out that a succubus is just one of hundreds of different types of fae, or hidden people, who are organized in a political system along a light and dark binary. So original. 
Bo is ordered to pick a side, but she refuses, deciding to stay neutral. In need of employment, Bo decides to become a private investigator. If that last sentence has you scratching your head, don't worry, you're not alone. I found it confusing as all heck, too, until I got into the groove of it. See, Bo's new world is a very complicated one, and giving her a reason to wander around asking questions serves the world building very well. It gets a little handholdy at times as Bo encounters one previously never mentioned situation after another, but I can't lie, I kind of dig it. I'm one of those nerds who goes and reads the Wikipedia articles about background Star Wars characters because I just want even more exposition dumps about them. I know it's lazy writing, but sometimes you just gotta have a tired sounding wizard give a deep sigh and explain to you that a kappa is a water demon that lives in the toilet paper pile or whatever. Oh man, I love this show. And I feel like I shouldn't. I mean, I know it's the most basic and easily provable of terms that this program is complete garbage, but I still cannot shake the feeling that everyone involved in the production was having the time of their lives, and somehow that makes it all okay. I would rather be watching a show I knew the cast was having a blast making than something arguably more important that nobody had any fun on. Fun fact along those lines, while filming the emotionally taxing Schindler's List, Steven Spielberg would phone up Robin Williams every night, put him on speakerphone, and have him entertain the cast and crew to cheer them up. Most of the time, I'd rather watch whatever Robin Williams was making at the time, but I digress. This is a great show, and it's a show about women, created by a woman, which puts it a step above Greta on that particular front, which isn't that hard. I think I keep coming back to the fun factor because of just how refreshing it feels. More often than not, creators seem to think that the only way to get genre fare to be taken seriously is to make it uber serious. Think Christopher No Emotion's Dark Knight trilogy. But the simple fact is that if we show up for a succubus or vampires or whatever, we're okay with it being a little silly. After all, there's enough grimness in real life without forking it into our media, too. Seriously, go watch this show. The whole thing is streaming on Netflix, and I think you can get it pretty easily through Amazon or, you know, Vindaloo or whatever the other streaming services are. Go watch it. It has a bisexual succubus private eye infiltrating a strip club full of selkies who are trying to steal their skins out of the safe at the back. It's just perfect. I'm not saying it's good, but... At least now you've heard about it. Mailbag. If you want to send me something in the mail, please do. I love getting letters and notes and, you know, just seriously, do this now. Go get an envelope, write strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225, number 21 on the envelope. Stick a stamp on it and just grab the nearest piece of paper on your counter. Just anything. Just could be a grocery list, whatever. Just grab the nearest, most random piece of paper in your house, stuff it in the envelope, and mail it to me. And I will open it live during recording on the podcast, and you can hear my reaction. So, you know, just think about the fact that you could mess with a podcast host by sending something through the mail. It's it's fascinating to think about paper mail. I was I was talking to an older person about paper mail and how like kind of magical paper mail really is. If you think about it, that, that 
you're getting to touch a piece of paper that someone else touched that someone created with intent you know wrote a letter on or, or wrote you know fuck you janet or whatever on there sorry if there's anyone out there named janet i, I just I always think of Janet when I need a name because when I think of Janet, I think of Darcy Carden just popping up and going, hi there. And it just makes me laugh. Anyway, uh, yeah, just, you know, it's it becomes something else. Even a negative note sent through the mail has this odd kind of power that a text or an email or a tweet never will. And that's why I keep telling you folks my address. Plus, you know, you can send stuff to Ben, too. You could send Ben fan letters because he also gets mail here. Same address. Uh, it's just, uh, I think it's number 18. So there you go. Now you know how to find Ben at work. <laughs> that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Strangely and Friends is produced at Sonic Suitcase Studios in Fairly Fine, Fairhaven, Washington. Sonic Suitcase Studios is located, as Ben and I said, in the Morgan Block Building, part of the People's Land Trust. This podcast is made possible by all of my amazing supporters on Patreon. You can check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of whatever this is. I hope you folks have a great week. I'm going to be doing NaNoWriMo starting today as soon as this podcast goes up, so... That's what I'm doing this week, in addition to doing lots of running. If you're interested in doing NaNoWriMo, check out NaNoWriMo, N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O.com to find out all about it. It's the super awesome writing challenge, and uh, yeah, happy NaNoWriMo. I will see you all next week. Cheers. Old lady walks into an ice cream shop. We'll say Mallard ice cream. She says, young man, I'll have a gallon of vanilla, a gallon of strawberry, and a gallon of chocolate. He says, I'm terribly sorry we're all out of chocolate. She says, well, then I'll have a scoop of vanilla. She said, I'll have a pint of vanilla, a pint of strawberry, and a pint of chocolate. He says, we're all out of chocolate. I'm sorry, maybe you didn't understand the first time. She says, I'll have a scoop of vanilla, a scoop of strawberry, and a scoop of chocolate. He says, lady, I don't know if I can make this any clearer to you. Look, can you spell the van in vanilla? She says, well, yes, V-A-N. He goes, can you spell the straw in strawberry? She says, S-T-R-A-W, I don't understand. He says, can you spell the fuck in chocolate? She says, I don't understand, there's no fuck in chocolate. That's what I'm trying to tell you, there's no fucking chocolate. <laughs> it's the cleanest dirty joke I ever told my mother. She was from Memphis and she adored it. Oh, that's amazing. Thank, Thank you. you so much. <laughs> Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.